0: And sometimes, why. Why, why? Welcome. My name is Rob Zabo, and this is episode number four of And Sometimes Why. On the show today, we've got a conversation with Emma Julien. Some of you may know her as Emma Jane, Emma Jane Julien. But before we get to that, I want to know what happened to the past tense. Like I was saying in episode number one, I love podcasts and I listen anytime I can squeeze one in when I'm folding laundry, doing dishes, cooking, whatever. And I've been noticing that the past tense doesn't really exist in modern media, especially in podcasts where there are interviews. People really just never use it. I started to notice this around the turn of the century, actually more like late 2000s, when I used to listen to Q a lot, the CBC Canadian public radio show, The Host Who Shall Remain Nameless, and the host almost never used the past tense. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. Even when we're talking about events that clearly happened in the past that have been set up as such, meaning let's say the host would ask one of the guests, where did you go to school? And the guest would reply, I went to school at Harvard. And then the host would immediately interject and say, so you're at Harvard. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're killing it. And immediately it's as if it's happening right now. So that always hits me as weird and really kind of affected. It's, it's clearly not happening. Why wouldn't you just use language that lets everyone know that it happened in the past? It seems like a weird little thing, like a, a pet peeve, but I think there are more wide-ranging implications. So I did some googling, of course, and apparently the technical term for this phenomenon is the historical present. Sexy. So, in reading some of the discussion, it seems like this practice has been going on for a long time. It's been going on especially in print media. So, the headlines, even in the 30s and 40s, always use the historical present because, I guess, media magnates at the time figured out that it's sexier to pretend everything is happening now than that it happened last week or whenever it actually happened. It gives a feeling that it's more current. I get that. but. Uh, I don't know. It still bugs me. It still bugs me because I kind of feel like there are more wide-ranging implications. I feel like in our current age of no context for anything on social media, I feel like the subtle implication is the past is bad. There's only the future, you know, and this is what we keep getting told, it seems, over and over in a really subtle way when this kind of verb tense gets used. And you may be thinking, I'm getting overly picky about this, but uh, I don't think I am. I feel like the subtle message it sends is, if something's happened in the past, it's not worth considering. It's not worth your attention. So if you take that to the nth degree, basically all of history is not worth considering because it's already happened. You know, on with the future. So, uh... Suffice it to say, I'm going to do everything in my power to avoid this little trap of the current language of the media landscape. Uh, We'll see how I do. Well, I'm glad I got that off my chest. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to bring you the conversation I had in the past with Emma Julien, Emma Jane Julien who is a dear friend of mine and who is one of the biggest music fans I've ever met. I mean, big parts of my career, career in air quotes, would not have happened without her. She worked on my album, Like a Metaphor, as publicist, and she was, I think, 15 or 16 at the time and got me better publicity for that as a first-time publicist than I'd ever gotten from, you know, really experienced publicists in their 30s and uh, who'd been doing it forever. So she's gone on to work in music publicity, of course, in music arts funding. She works at ReSound currently. But more than anything, she's a tireless promoter of grassroots music, especially folk She's a true badass. I I really, I tell her this all the time. I want to be more like her when I grow up. I want to have that kind of self-possessed self-confidence without a trace of bravado. She's just straight up, what you see is what you get. I could talk about her for hours. I'm going to stop myself. So without any more preamble, I bring you my conversation with Emma Jane Julian. So, Emma-Jane Julien, thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) You're being bashful. That's not what I expected. Because you're just so self-assured and self-confident, and it seems to me like that's not dependent on being reinforced by anyone else. And I wish I had that.
1: (laughs) My therapist also says that. (laughs)
0: She says that about you. Yeah. I assumed it's a she, is it? Yeah. Anyone who's ever met you must feel that.
1: I think that's come up before people assume that I'm not totally shy, but then there will be situations where I don't want to go up and ask somebody a question or something like that. And my friends are like, "What are you? what's happening to you right now?
0: Because they think the same thing.
1: I think most of us are shy or awkward or whatever in some way and then just have learned how to move past it and function in the world, right? Right. Basically, until I was 16 or 17, I could hardly order my own food in a restaurant. Are you serious? I was so shy.
0: I would never have guessed that.
1: Yeah. I identify as a shy person. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. I certainly do. Like, it's odd to me because I've had people come up to me over the years I've been performing, and they assume if they've never met me and they've seen me play, and then they meet me in in some other context and they realize I'm really quite shy and, and socially awkward in a lot of ways. I've got so many things I want to ask you that in, in a regular conversation would feel just kind of like, "What, Rob, why are you asking me this? Like, <laughs> I like daydream about, about all sorts of things to <laughs> ask people that I'm close to because I'm really curious, right? I wanted to talk about how we met at the Yellow Door in Montreal.
1: Yeah, uh, that was my first time going there. I was coming to see you. Because I had heard about your show from MySpace.
0: Right. So this is this is a music club. It's a small folk club in Montreal.
1: I walked in and the coordinator just asked me if on my way down I would uh, change the toilet paper.
0: <laughs> what? And, and that's the first time you've been there?
1: Yeah. I'd never been there. I was like, yeah, okay. Like, I can bring this toilet paper downstairs. Sure.
0: <laughs> Talk about community-minded, right?
1: Then I guess, like, the rest is history. Like, from there, it was just such a a home like atmosphere that it felt really comfortable and as a teenager there weren't a lot of places like that that presented music for me to go so it was really natural for me that I would like keep coming back there
0: and then eventually start to get involved in promoting musicians either there or all over Canada
1: yeah it's kind of where it all began on that fateful day
0: oh wow i didn't realize that i thought you'd been coming to shows for for i don't know months <laughs> At that
1: point. <laughs> I I guess it had been months or maybe about a, a year-ish, but I'd never been to the Yellow Door before. And it was mostly like I'd get my dad to take me to some bar in town that had music at it or whatever that I heard about also from MySpace probably. Yeah, that was like kind of the only place that I could go on my own. Because they didn't serve friends. alcohol, right? Yeah, just it was a coffee house, right, tea house. Right.
0: Your parents were really into music, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, both super different worlds that they came from musically, but both huge music fans. Like my dad's really into 70s classic rock, psychedelic stuff, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, King Crimson. All the classic stuff. Yeah. But my mom was really into country and like singer-songwriter stuff. And
0: Did they try and turn you on to that music or you just kind of absorbed it because that's what they were playing? Yeah, they the they were just
1: huge music fans themselves. So there was almost always music on right. somewhere. Like I, the kitchen radio was already always on, you know, and in my dad's car, we always listened to music and uh, he lived quite far away from us. So whenever we were going over to his place or he was bringing us home, we were we were spending long stretches of time in the car together. Right. Music was always the background or sometimes very much in the foreground because he he would tell us about, you know, oh, this is the first album that I bought or whatever. Oh,
0: really? So he was right into it and he'd, he'd, he'd talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, my parents weren't really like that. They weren't that into music.
1: I think they didn't think that they were... I don't think my mom really identified as someone who was really into music, but she actually really was and my dad more was because I think he worked in like a record store at one point when he was a t- teenager and right. stuff like that. Like they, yeah. des- they deserve more <laughs> recognition for <laughs> that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> for making you the woman that you you've become. Yeah. How did it progress from there? I mean, you started going to shows and then next thing you know, you've you've been a part of the music industry for the better part of the well last 15 years at least right 16 something like that
1: more than half my life at this point
0: <laughs> early like really soon after we'd met you did publicity work for me as a 15 or 16 year old having never done it and got me better press than I'd gotten for, for from people who were in their you know well established publicists in the industry who'd been working at it for decades and and you're just like right in there doing the amazing job. And I'm, I'm just thinking, this person is a rock star. This is incredible. I guess, So I guess it doesn't surprise me that you went on to work in music because you're just such a natural and you're so passionate about it, like from, from a young age, right?
1: I think I was just trying so hard, but I had no concept of what a success would look like. So I just... Did as much as I could. And I was using like our shared family computer in the basement, you know? And like, right. my mom would be like, um, Are you done with the computer yet? I'm like, Mom, I'm working. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I'd email you a list of like people to contact so yeah. and so in Toronto at this magazine, so and so, and, and you'd get results. And I was shocked. You know, having come from, you know, being in rock bands, you know, 10 years earlier with labels that paid publicists thousands of dollars and the publicist would often come back to you and go, yeah, sorry, guys, uh, we didn't get any any responses on this.
1: I, w- I was that publicist right, <laughs> later right, right. on. I mean, not on purpose, <laughs> but that first campaign, I mean, I was so serious, right? I was like such a serious teenager and I think it felt like this is my like shot at getting into the music world or wow and and I can't let Rob down like and I have to get results.
0: Wow wasn't I lucky now that I look <laughs> back at it, I mean I felt lucky at the time but even more so now when I hear you describe it like that.
1: Well I was lucky too like that you gave me that chance and I thought back to that first campaign so many times when I was working full time as a publicist and not getting results and being so disappointed in myself being like, oh, this isn't like that first time. You oh, know? really? You,
0: you use that as a measuring stick in oh, some ways? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, I had nothing else going on in my life, right? I, right. I when you're
0: 15. You, yeah. You, yeah.
1: There was nothing else for me to spend all my energy on other than school.
0: That makes me think of when I was that age and I was playing guitar and I would, that's all I would do. I'd go to school, I'd come home for lunch, play guitar for an hour, go back to school, come back at like whatever, three, whenever you get off, play guitar until dinner, five, six hours a day. Who who can do anything for that length of time exactly. when you're an adult, right?
1: Yeah. Teenagers have the, the luxury of time and the gift of intense focus. And yeah. <laughs> I energy. really respect teenagers. I used to think when I was a teenager and hanging around with, with all you guys, like, why do they want to spend time with me? Or like, why... Are they even responding to me when I'm you know sending them emails and and asking for stuff and and now looking back like I and knowing some teenagers, like now I'm around the same age that some of my friends were when I met them when I was a teenager.
0: This is something we've talked about a lot, but the people listening might not realize Euro was a person who had friends that were way older than you, often fifteen or twenty years older. So at the time you were fifteen, I was in my early thirties, and I was one of the younger people that you were probably hanging yeah. out with in terms of musicians and people that you ended up working for as a, as a publicist or whatever other stuff that you did.
1: I think I get it more now. Like I understand more how you might have seen me at the time. Like I was just serious and I and I wanted to do it and I did it. I get it more. Right, now. right.
0: And so you you're coming from you know, being the the person who was always the young one in the relationship or in the group. And now you're at the point where, you know, you're in your 30s and you're in a, many positions where you're mentoring younger people. Mm-hmm. So how does that feel to you now? You know, the roles are reversed.
1: It's so funny. A lot of people still group me in to youth in, you know, the folk world, for example. Right. There's a lot of people who are younger than me and I've been working with this youth advisory committee for the Folk Music Ontario board. Mm-hmm. And they the youths are the people who I'm consulting, but the rest of the board kind of groups me into the to the youth committee because I'm one of the youngest people. I think probably am the youngest person on our board right on now. On the board, yeah, yeah. Um one of the members of the committee referred to me as the matriarch of the youth. And I thought that was <laughs> hilarious.
0: Yeah, to hear you talk <laughs> about it. It's is freaky for me, you can imagine. Because, you know, when you meet someone, they're kind of fixed in time to a certain degree, like when you met them. So I'm always right. going to think of you as younger to a certain extent, right? Yeah. You do feel, it's it's crazy as you get older, right? You just, yeah. I mean, we're just staring at each other now. It's, it's hard to put into words. It's bittersweet.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that, I notice kind of the most is I don't get like a free pass anymore.
0: A free pass I, in terms of how you're well, I was behaving like a child or whatever. Like a prodigy or something right, like right, when right. I was
1: this 15-year-old doing publicity and everything. And now I'm just an adult who <laughs> everybody has the same <laughs> expectations as me, of me as everyone else does. Yeah, I get it. But it's okay.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things you've done in music? Sure. You worked for a, a couple of really well-known publicists in Toronto. Or or actually I guess you never worked for Richard Flohill. No, did you? Richard
1: was my mentor guide. He kind of introduced me to some institutions in Toronto. Like I met him at Folk Alliance when I went there when I was sixteen. Right. It was in Montreal that year and that's where I was living at the time. Um
0: for people who don't know, Folk Alliance is this huge conference that's international that basically anyone who's Seriously into folk music, either as a performer or a fan or any industry role will go to this no matter where it is in the world.
1: Right. Every five to seven years or so, it comes to Canada. It's mostly in the U.S., the mm-hmm. international conference. It was in Montreal this particular year. Our mutual friend Donna snuck me in, basically, I don't know if she knew that we were supposed to register and pay to be there, right? but she didn't care either way. and right. we, I had no clue, and I was just wandering around. Nobody's going to ask a kid. Yeah, because
0: it is an industry conference, yeah. right? You have to pay. There's a registration fee and all sorts of fees, right?
1: Now I'm well acquainted with how it all works. Then I had no idea. And I would say that this falls into when I was still extremely shy. <laughs> right? And I was just kind of wandering around staring at people and reading posters and trying to stay out of the way.
0: And those conferences are mind-blowers. Even as an adult, if you've never been, there's just so much going on. It's an explosion of personalities and creativity. It it can just, I mean, you can just look around and just people watch all day long. It was shocking. It was
1: going to Folk Alliance is what threw me into all of this and like showed me this world that I would one day be part of and and it's pretty much my whole world now.
0: Right. It's crazy to just to go on one of the floors where the entire floor is rented out and every single room on a hotel floor has a different music 10 different acts all night long until four in the morning or or more, right? Yeah. And just the hallways are overflowing with people going from one room to the other and people are drunk and people are playing in the hallways and the elevators, full bands, you know, stand-up bass, everything. It's crazy, right?
1: It's like describing a weird dream to somebody. Yeah. Someone who's never heard of this happening before. You're saying, I had this dream that I was in a hotel room and there was a full band playing and, you know, there was no furniture in the room. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, and then I walked to another room, and there was another <laughs> yeah. band playing, and all the way down the hall. Right, and, and
1: the bathtub was full of beer, and it's an absolutely wild thing for a 16-year-old to walk into with no clue.
0: And so you and your partner and host hosting, and Gabby, have hosted a room there for many years, right?
1: Gabby and I are on our fifth year of hosting uh, a showcase room called The Campsite at... Folk Music Ontario. Uh, We've also hosted it once at Folk Alliance, and we're we're going again in 2020. So we've expanded internationally now. We were going to the conferences and attending just to go and have fun. And we just decided, why not do this ourselves? Because we have a lot of fun, and instead of having to run around all night looking for the people who we want to hear... We can just have them all play in our own room. (laughs) So it was a little bit selfish in a way, but it's a labor of love and we have so much fun doing it. And we decorate the whole room. We try our best to turn the Toronto Airport Hotel into a forest.
0: (laughs) I I love that you guys do that. I love that you've been doing it year after year and uh, you get a lot of submissions, is that kind of tough to to like whittle it down? You can't have everyone play, it's right? It's so
1: hard. We have seven slots a night that we can book people in. So Over three nights or four oh, nights? Oh, two, nights, two at, nights at Folk Music Ontario, 14 artists who we can book. And it's devastating to have to say no to so many people. Usually we get between, I'd say like 50 and 150, depending on the year applications.
0: For seven, so 14 slots total. Yeah. And just to put it in perspective, this is an industry event that's three days long. Two days have after-hours showcases. There are quote-unquote official showcases that are on bigger stages in the uh, conference rooms. And you're saying you get 150 applications for an after-hours showcase in a a lone hotel room as someone who more or less just started doing it, right?
1: People are hungry for showcasing opportunities. No kidding. And we just wanna provide the best possible scenario for performers to perform and for the people who are there to hear and discover music to enjoy and take it in. That's our goal with the campsite. Uh Um,
0: How do you make those decisions? I know you're a huge supporter of people who are just coming up and maybe don't have that much experience. But you can't have that all night long. You want some people who are more experienced who are going to put on a good show, right? So how do you make those decisions?
1: Well, Gabby Harvey, my best friend, we make all the decisions together. We've been going to music together since we were 16. We met at that show that you did at The Yellow Door in 2005, November 4th. We met that night. We know pretty well what the other person is into musically. And we also know what our sort of brand or something i i don't know how to explain it but
0: it doesn't feel good to say brand no you sort it, of well, winced when you said that
1: people pay us to play the showcase right so right now our showcase room we just do it for fun they have to pay a showcase fee because we have to pay for the hotel room and the food and the drinks and what have yeah, you've
0: got lots of expenses you yeah
1: write. so we're just like we're going to give you this space. You're going to pay us your 50 bucks
0: or whatever it is. It's not like it's a huge money-making thing for you, right? You're probably breaking even if you're lucky, right?
1: I think last year we we made $10. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's only because we have so much stuff accumulated that we just reuse every year, like uh-huh. decor-wise and everything. Anyways, we both listen to every application separately, and then we assign... A color, basically like green, (laughs) yellow, or red.
0: That's like a stoplight.
1: Yeah, just do we like this? Yes, no, maybe. And then we get together and we talk about every single one. Whether we put a green or a red or not, it's just kind of to help us sort of a benchmark for where we're at because there are so many applications. We do research on these people. It's so
0: difficult. I've I've been a judge at the Canadian Folk Music Awards, and it's excruciating. Because to me, music is so—it's—it's it's so apples to oranges, right?
1: Absolutely, and we rarely have any reds in the in the list by the time we're done listening through. And usually, the only ones who are are people who've already played our room because right. we don't like to do repeats since we only have fourteen slots every year. Right. We want to give other people opportunities, so we think about. Is this person releasing a new album this year? Uh-huh. We want to make sure that it's really worth their while. So we go deep into these people's lives. <laughs> that's so. That's <laughs> to so. That's so or giving
0: not. on your part, right? Like that's that's takes so much energy and time and all of, all of it, right? Yeah. Like money on in the first many because you you probably lost money on, you know, right. before you're re- reusing stuff, yeah. right?
1: We truly do it just just for fun and because we love performers and artists and we just want to give them a a platform. And we've both worked with artists a lot over the last 15 years. So we think we have a pretty good idea of what their best interests are and try to use a sort of managerial lens, looking at everything that's going on for them and trying to figure out where and when they should play.
0: <laughs> right. And probably more more thought than they've given it, likely.
1: <laughs> I think so. Sometimes I'm sure there are people who are disappointed that we don't select them, but we try, especially if people apply year after year and mm-hmm. we just haven't found the right spot for them yet. We take note of that and try to fit them in.
0: Oh my God. I, I really admire you for that. That's I don't imagine everyone does it that way.
1: Most of the rooms are hosted by someone who has some sort of roster or mm-hmm. membership or something like, like that. Like they've got an
0: axe to grind.
1: Yeah, they're there for some reason, right?
0: <laughs> That's so, such a positive thing, that you don't have a horse in the race, like, as an agency or as a manager or as a label, right. right? Yeah. You guys had, I don't know what to call it, an initiative, or you you introduced a program for that had something to do with safe spaces for women, Uh, Was it at Folk Alliance or at Folk Music Ontario or both?
1: So at Folk Music Ontario a couple of years ago, this was right after hashtag Me Too. And we thought it was important to us to just put up a little poster in our room that says, this is a safer space and we won't tolerate any kind of behavior that makes anyone uncomfortable here. You know, it listed transphobia, racism, sexism... Homophobia, listed all kinds of things uh-huh. that we don't want to see or have our guests experience in our room.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Not expecting that anybody would behave that way, but just as a reminder that if they were thinking about it <laughs> we were we were watching and also as a reminder to our guests that if they were feeling unsafe they could talk to us and we would do our best to help. Right. We just put up that sign just to remind everybody that we're aware and we're here and we're keeping an eye out. Right. We didn't expect it to be this huge thing and we and certainly it, it did
0: turn into a huge thing. It
1: turned into a really huge thing and oh, wow. and this huge discussion online there were a lot of people commenting women are too sensitive these days and all kinds of stuff like that, that we were were just like, oh,
0: we got it. So it sounds like it was really important that you put that up because it it certainly started a discussion. Is that something that you, you ran into? Like, I'm curious to know your experience as a woman, especially as a young woman coming into the sort of higher echelons of the Canadian music industry. Is that something that you experience often, or anytime, but just the idea that you were treated a particular way because you were young and because you're a woman and, and for the most part, the people running the industry were, were men. Is, is that fair to say?
1: I'm lucky enough that I have a lot of privilege and I can like comfortably express myself But there are so many people who are marginalized and not taken seriously when they do have something to express or who don't feel safe expressing themselves. Mm -hmm. So in the context of a folk conference, there are a lot of younger women there and men in power. Mm -hmm. They may not intentionally uh, use their power, but maybe some people are trying to harm people. We don't know what's going on there. Mm -hmm. It's a risky Context: it, There's a lot of closed doors. Mm-hmm. It's a hotel room. There's a lot of drinking, partying. Yeah, yeah. It's also very white. There's, it's it, it mostly is. white people. It is, isn't it? So when someone comes in who isn't white, I don't know what kind of oppression they experience there, and I don't want them to feel any oppression or experience that at all. I will use my voice to help them if they need it. We didn't think that we would have to explain it or defend it in any way
0: and you did end up having to do that repeatedly
1: yeah we eventually just came up with some response i don't remember what and then took aside the person who had posted it who's our friend and who didn't do so in intent to to harm us or cut us down or anything it wasn't malicious no it wasn't malicious at all it was just ignorant and we took him aside and talked to him about it he understood and he learned something, and
0: so you're educating people. That's that's such a positive thing to put out into the world, like in so many ways.
1: It was really stressful for us, and <laughs> but but we're glad we're so glad that that happened. Year after year, now people ask us for those signs again, or people put up their own. Right. Um, we're looking more into how to provide bystander intervention training for people. We. Go to bystander intervention training sessions when when we find them available to yeah. us. And can we just you explain want to... a
0: little bit w- about what what that would look like or what that training's like?
1: It's basically being able to spot when something is going down that someone is uncomfortable or in harm's way and trying to
0: intervene. So can you give me an example of a situation that might qualify?
1: A really simple example would be those two people look like they're leaving together. Let's just take a look at who they are. Is it a much younger woman and a much older man? Does she look really drunk or does she seem really drunk? Did they come in together? Do they seem to know each other? Just like running through those questions in your mind.
0: hmm Looking, Looking out, out for, for your people. Yeah,
1: the training is really important because you want to be able to intervene in a way that's safe for yourself and for the other person. Mm-hmm. And so, in that scenario, if maybe I would go up to her and say, like, "Oh, hey, right. I didn't know you were here," you know, give her an opportunity to say, "Hi, right. oh my God, I haven't seen you in so long. Sorry, I got to talk to my friend."
0: To subtly, you know, just to exit.
1: And there's so many things like that that we can do and we shouldn't be shy about doing.
0: I, uh, I applaud you guys for that. Thanks. For whatever that's worth. <laughs>
1: yeah. We we definitely fell into it by accident, kind of. We uh-huh. totally didn't mean to become like the poster children for safer spaces uh-huh. in the folk community. <laughs> right, right. Um, But we did. And so um, we just tried to, I guess, rise to it and learn more if we can and try to make safer spaces wherever we go.
0: Yet another reason for me to want to be more like you when I grow up. So uh, you ended up working at the Ontario Arts Council for, for a while there after working in publicity in Toronto, right? Yeah. So that's a arts granting body in Ontario and Canada. You know, one of the bigger questions I have is having worked there and having seen how this is public money gets doled out into many different sectors of the arts, music, you know, uh, literary ventures, uh, dance. Do you think it's being done well overall?
1: It's this mix of administrative people who have to follow these bureaucratic rules and regulations and bylaws and whatever.
0: There's so many rules and regulations because it's public money. Yeah. So they're yeah.
1: But then all the people who are the program officers mm-hmm. of each discipline
0: mm-hmm.
1: have worked in that discipline for their entire careers and are amazing artists themselves and have had so many different careers themselves on their way to being the officer of that program they're all these super creative interesting people who are there for the artists and they're there for art that was really really fascinating to me to see how that all worked together (laughs) um
0: I'm so interested to hear about some of this because I've only ever seen it from the artist, you know, being a musical artist who's applied and, and got funded through that agency many times. But I really had no idea how the inner workings, yeah, yeah, how it worked.
1: I remember my first day there happened to be an all-staff meeting on my first day, which was very intimidating, just looking around the room. The director of granting was, like, this cool goth lady a little bit, and she just spoke with such confidence, and I have, like, powerful woman crush on, oh, like, all fantastic. these amazing women who work at the Ontario Arts Council. I mean, there are, there are wonderful men who work there, too, but most administrative positions tend to be filled by women, like, uh, through the history of time, right? It right. T- it's right. just more women in general. So... My job itself was not an ounce of creativity required for it, which is the case for a lot of those government jobs. Like so you're up serving artists, type, right? but you're an administrator.
0: But it sounds like you learned a lot and you certainly were in a position where you had these, even if they weren't formal mentors, it sounds like they ended up being mentors to you just by example.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I learned a lot there and met a lot of people who I'm still you know, in touch with or encounter out in out in the arts world because uh-huh. there are people who love art, so they're out there. I got to know a lot about how the granting system works. It's changed a lot since then. It hasn't even been that long. It's only been like three and a half years since I worked there, but, right. but it's already changed a lot and it's continuing to change, especially as government changes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of changes, so...
0: I feel like I might know what the answer to this is, but I'm, I am really am genuinely curious to know whether you think public arts funding is the right way to go. Is is it important?
1: Oh, well, public arts funding is vital for us here. You know, we rely on it a lot in Canada versus like America where they have barely any arts funding.
0: Or the UK, yeah. for instance.
1: Um, part of my job was to... Review final reports on projects, which right. was really fun because I got to read and find out how the money was used. It was just so nice to see all these projects that came to fruition because of sometimes small amounts of money that the artists were awarded.
0: Yeah, I I totally get it. I mean, I've been funded by that organization several times, and some of the projects that I that got funded wouldn't wouldn't really have happened in the way that they did without that funding. Now having said that, it's easy for me to be the devil's advocate for, it, you know, to assume the position of someone who's maybe more conservative-minded and, and to just say, well, how do I express this? Usually the argument is if you let the market decide, the cream will rise to the top and the stuff that makes money makes money and it'll survive. And the stuff that doesn't won't and it probably doesn't deserve to. And so by definition, too much public arts funding waters down the quality of the art that gets produced. Yeah, OK. I've heard that from the perspective of people saying, well, look at the U.K., look at the U.S. per capita, the artists that they produce. It's, it's more of a tough love thing approach.
1: Right. The way that public funding is allocated, they've thought it through, you know, it's a peer assessed jury, so it's other artists in that discipline who assess the applications. They're the ones who decide who gets the money, so it's based on artistic merit. Mhm. So I don't see how that could possibly water down the quality of the art that's getting funded. Right. It's artists who decide.
0: I wanted to hear you make the argument. I mean, if someone were to put the point that I just put to you, to me, what I tend to do is if if you're going to take it from a strictly capitalist business standpoint, if you look at any modern industrialized first world nation, the amount of business grants that get doled out in every sector dwarf this kind of arts granting by so many degrees of magnitude that it's almost equal to zero. There's no comparison whatsoever, So to quibble about what's the value of art and all of that all you have to do is look at how much of a big business art is even in just a city like toronto and the tourism it brings and all the dollars art creates value for people never mind the emotional and mental value and all of that just purely if you're you know arguing with someone who's super right wing just in dollars and cents, it drives the economy incredibly. And the amount of grants that get doled out in the arts is so small compared to to tax breaks a particular other, you know, the oil sector gets
1: right. I had this idea for like a short film. Imagine following a twenty dollar bill around the arts world. And right, like right. I remember I was out at the Cameron, I put twenty dollars in the hat there and then and Somebody paid my boyfriend who had played with them earlier. I was thinking, oh, there's my $20 going now oh, to Mike. Great, and then great. we went out to the local and he put it in the hat there. And then, you know, and I was just imagining this $20 bill just like cycling through that, That's a great idea. You should do
0: that. You should totally do that.
1: Someone else can do it. Someone listening to this. You have my blessing to run with that idea. <laughs> it's a great
0: idea. So you've got this CD club.
1: I have been thinking a lot about streaming. And my day job now is I collect royalties for performers on recordings at Resound Music Licensing. Um, So, you know, royalties are on my mind and rates are on my mind a lot, you know, certified rates for things in Canada. Also on my mind is like all these people who I know who are trying to make albums and sell CDs still. So talking to Corn Raymond, who's a dear friend of mine who's been putting out for his last few albums, basically what he calls a coffee table CD. Mm -hmm. It's a small book that also has CDs in it. Um, Right. Smart. He puts so much work into making something that's of value to people so that they want to buy it because that's how he makes a living is people buying his stuff at the at the merch table.
0: Yeah, just listening to it on Spotify is not going to keep you alive in the same way, obviously. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: So Corin has been pretty vocal about that to his audience, just about, I need you to buy my merchandise.
0: Otherwise, you're not going to get any more music from me.
1: Right, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's really important to make that connection because it seems like in this day and age of never-ending quote-unquote content... People forget that you need to stay alive in order to produce content.
1: Right. Audiences just need to be told, hey, this might be really convenient for you, but it's not convenient for me to lose out on that 20 bucks that I would have gotten from Mm -hmm. you picking up my CD at the merch table. Right. I've been thinking a lot about how to support my friends in that way, how to... Tell other music fans that they need to buy CDs and how to get people interested in CDs again. Mm-hmm. Everything else from the '90s is exciting again. I saw somebody with a Tamagotchi the other day, and right. I just w- thought, why can't CDs be cool and fun again be too? Thing.
0: All you got to do is find a player.
1: Yeah, and they're and they're still <laughs> they're still out there. Um, that is sort of what actually inspired me to start CD Club because last summer. My dad sent me home from his place with this cool three CD changer, dual cassette deck. Great sound. It's a Sony. It's probably like 2001-ish. It got me into my old CD collection again. And and I felt so nostalgic about everything and remembered how much I love listening to all these CDs that I spend a lot of money collecting.
0: And you listen to them differently. I, I find I do. And I'd go one step further with vinyl. You you don't skip around as much and you're more in it for the long haul because it's less easy to click away, for better or for worse. But I just feel like, you know, when I was younger and I used to listen to vinyl, I you know, you'd pick up the, the sleeve and you read who did what and read the lyrics and do all. And it's just it's so different.
1: I had started collecting vinyl more than I'd been collecting CDs over the last almost 10 years. I hadn't really collected CDs that much. And I was re-inspired to start picking up CDs at the merch table instead of just listening to it on Spotify. And I loved my Spotify account, which I have, like my uh, Spotify premium. I've since canceled it. And it's really changed how I engage with music now. I I definitely don't listen to music as much as I was when I had Spotify. Mm -hmm. But when I am listening to music, I'm so much more engaged with it and conscious and it's kind of more special again. It's not just snacking. eh? It's more like having a good meal, you know.
0: I certainly have gone through a similar process with the way that I engage with music. And it just the technology drives you in a certain way and what, you know, first glance seems like such a benefit in the long run – with the streaming thing often ends up having a lot of downside and you really end up getting disconnected in a certain way. I'm still figuring out my thoughts and feelings on this because there, there are a lot of upsides too.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't want to be passive with my art consumption. Mm-hmm. So I started just kind of polling my Facebook friends like, hey, who still has a CD player? Just wondering for no reason. Yeah, yeah. I think 100 people responded to my poll. Right. And only three of them said they didn't have a CD player.
0: So you thought this is totally doable.
1: And, well, I thought at least the people in my life are interested in CDs, right? Right, right. Or or have access to listening to CDs. So I'm not trying to, like, change the world with CD Club. I'm just trying to get the people immediately around me interested in buying CDs again. Basically, people can sign up... Pay me seventy five dollars for a three month subscription. It's twenty five dollars a month, and then I curate what CDs they're going to receive. So each month, it's a it's one CD, and it's
0: like the Columbia Record Club a little bit,
1: sort of. Because I remember them arriving and them saying, "Don't open it. We have to return it, or right, we have right, to pay for it." Because they'd send you a bunch
0: of stuff, <laughs> and then if you returned it. You didn't have to pay for it, or you could get like 10 for a cent, but then you had to buy the next five for whatever, 15 bucks or whatever it was. My
1: club is not nearly as complicated. Right. I want you to open the package when it arrives, and I want you to pay for the music at a reasonable amount of money.
0: So it's 25 bucks a month, minimum three months. You make decisions on what people get, usually limited to like folk that's probably regional in in
1: i mean i'm totally open to music from anywhere of any genre uh if i believe in it and think it's cool so the first album that's going out that is the only one that everybody knows what it is is corin raymond's new album dirty mansions so we partnered up to sort of cross promote and uh, he's the biggest champion of the thing he calls it like holding the thing in your hands Just and what it item, means whatever. to have.
0: Right, right. A physical, like a totem. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I totally get that.
1: Whereas having a subscription to an online service doesn't really mean anything.
0: Being part of a tribe that is supporting an idea, which is usually tied to a person, which is always tied to a person. If you want more of where that came from, you have to support The idea and the person somehow, because otherwise they're just going to have to go and work at 7-Eleven.
1: Right. I mean, there's always going to be people who don't want to buy a CD and that's fine. But there are a lot of people who I think if you pitch it right, will say, yeah, sure, I'll take one of those home. You know, one of my sort of pitches with the CD club was even if you don't have a CD player and you still just want to be part of it. Just carve out a little bit of space under your bed or, you know, in the top of your closet or something for a handful of CDs that are going to come in the mail and make you happy.
0: I love the idea of it's getting back to the patronage system, right? Where it's no longer the chances of of someone being a mainstream huge artist, a star, Mm -hmm. that's going away. Mm -hmm. And it's more the kind of thousand true fans thing or or less of of just a community of people who are like-minded and have similar touchstones and i don't know that feels good to me musical artists have been making their voices heard a lot in the last little while about that the streaming model really just doesn't work but i don't think the public at large really understands how little artists get
1: the Key thing is that it's all artists are getting now. They're not getting sales anymore, right? Whereas before royalties would maybe be like a little extra bonus thing on top of the bulk of the money that you're making from selling merchandise some, some or
0: selling a thing.
1: Yeah. Now it's just royalties and people are realizing how <laughs> how low these rates right, are. Right, right. I'm really glad that artists are being vocal about it uh-huh. right now. So that the average person can understand, because a lot of people don't even know what royalties are or that artists earn royalties or how or what it is. And I think a lot of people assume that it's like a cash cow. So I'm glad that that's being talked about more uh, because hopefully that translates into people being advocates for this kind of thing people advocating for copyright reform Mm -hmm. or you know maybe it'll influence their voting there's a lot that can change and that should change for artists for the better in canada mostly it just has to do with updating things
0: yeah good point so i want to ask you about one of the best shows i've been to in such a long time You did a show at the Cameron House here in Toronto, and you're not a performer, or you hadn't been to that point. You just learned to play guitar. You did a show as Emma Jane and the Patsy Clones. It warmed my heart in so many ways. Here you are, this woman who has been supporting other artists for 15 years of her life. That's Basically, what you've been doing with most of your time in all your different roles and all these industry roles and in your free time, every way and imaginable, from you know, working with me when you were 15, doing publicity for free and and changing my profile significantly. And here you are now the artist. And you've got a room full of people who most of whom you've helped in really concrete ways, and you're up on stage telling stories and performing and singing some songs. It was so great.
1: Thank you. I'm blushing.
0: <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, what a what an event and you could just feel the love for you in the room because of everything you've done for all those people that I was describing, but also the show itself was so great <laughs> and you're such an engaging performer. Just because you're so natural and authentic, and uh, I've been just gushing about how I want to be more like you when I grow up. But, you you know, as a performer, you're just kind of like the same way you are in real life, which is, I don't really care whether you like me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so relaxing to watch.
1: I'm glad that it went the way it went, and it was a wild success. I didn't expect that at all.
0: Everyone who was there was so genuinely happy to be there. And and the introduction Peter Katz gave you warmed my heart because it was so on point for what everybody in the room was feeling. I mean, I tried to do it, it, you know, when I just brought this up, but just the idea that you'd prop so many different people up and this was the one chance that any of those people had, you know, other than to be a friend, in a concrete way to be there for you. Right. And that felt great from my perspective, just in the little way that I could, you know, just be there in the audience, right? Yeah.
1: Thanks. Do you have a particular question about it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. I want to be more like that. That's uh, Now people get what it's like to be with you. They're like, okay, that's great, Rob.
1: It felt totally surreal. I mean, I'd been to the Cameron house, I don't know how many hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times, I don't know, Yeah. in my life. It really crept up on me. I mean, I booked it a year in advance.
0: And you had to learn to play guitar. You booked the show and you're learning to play guitar and sing as part of the process. (laughs) I wanted it to be
1: like my recital because I wanted to learn how to play guitar. And I had tried learning when I was maybe 18 or so and I just didn't get it. It just wasn't clicking at all and it didn't sound like anything I... Heard in the music that I was listening to, and that was frustrating to me. Right. So I started learning guitar again three years ago, ish, two and a half years ago. Yeah. From my boyfriend, who happens to be an amazing guitar player and just a wonderful teacher, also. And it just clicked. I got it all of a sudden. I'm no like prolific songwriter or amazing shredder or anything but you're playing guitar for people it just made a lot more sense now after having spent the last 10 years in between listening to so much music and spending so much time watching people play guitar Mm -hmm. Uh, but you still had to put in the time oh yeah and right I wanted, I'm like a goal driven person. So I wanted to have something that would hold me accountable and force me to practice.
0: So you booked yourself a show. So,
1: yeah. And it was my 30th <laughs> a year birthday. Out. So it wasn't just, you know, any old day. It was on the day of my 30th birthday. I just kind of thought it would be funny to do. Like, wouldn't right. that be funny if I played a show at the Cameron House? One of the only things I remember from the actual show, I think it was after the first song. So I kind of had my back to part of the room like where you were sitting because I was I was turned to be looking at... Uh, at the band. Yeah. So there I, w- <laughs> I was with my back to a big, big part of the room and also the door. I finished playing and I turned around and there were so many more people there than when I had started playing that song. I think what I said was, have you ever just turned around and seen everybody you've ever loved staring back at you? And oh, that's my. really what it felt like. And it was like... So many people who I didn't expect to show up. People traveled in from all kinds of places. My dad came in. I thought that it would be really intimidating to be playing for, you know, all my favorite musicians.
0: (laughs) Right. And some people might have come across that way. And that's why I've said a lot of the things that I've said. You were so self-possessed in a way that people who've never performed rarely on stage in that way it didn't seem like you gave a shit at all in the best way here i
1: am i was so glad you were there and that's the thing is everybody was so kind and there was n- nobody was chatty or anything like that you know everybody was paying really close attention and was just giving me the space to do this weird thing that i decided to do <laughs> and it was it was lovely I'm,
0: I'm so glad we did this thanks so much for coming to talk to me you've been a huge part of my life It's really cool of you to come and talk about it like this.
1: Well, thanks for having me. You raised me to be who I am today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So where can people find you on the webs? Do you want to promote your CD Club?
1: So cdclub2000.com. I don't know how long CD Club is going to go for. Right now, it's just going for three months and kind of see how many people sign up and what we can do with it.
0: And elsewhere on the web, do you want to Instagram?
1: At the campsite rules with a Z.
0: Thanks so much for for doing this, Emma. Thank you. Yes, Emma Jane, a woman wise and capable beyond her years, even as a teenager. I'm so lucky to know her. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are, on the treadmill, on the public transit system, going for a walk. I love it. I appreciate it. We appreciate it. Todd Donald, who does the conversation editing, and myself. You can email me at andsometimesypod at gmail.com. The Y is the word, not the letter. And please take care of yourselves out in the world until next Wednesday. And, and even beyond that, thanks for giving a shit. And Sometimes Why is brought to you by Rob Zaboh. Conversations are edited by Todd Donald.